Welcome back to the Two Body Problem podcast. This is Akshay. And I'm Sarah. And it's been a a few weeks since we had an episode, but things were a little bit busy. So we're hoping to kick things off again with um, a topic. This is a little bit of a different topic, um, but we're excited to talk about it. So we're going to be discussing our opinions on Ant-Man. Uh, the 2015 Marvel movie about the guy who shrinks to the size of an ant and controls ants. So Sarah's been catching up on her Marvel viewing and um, a few weeks ago we watched Ant-Man and Sarah had, um, and we both had some strong opinions on it. So what I'll say is a couple of things. I'm a relatively new Marvel fan. I I don't know that I'd consider myself a fan. I, I enjoyed a couple of the movies. I really liked um, Captain Marvel. I liked Black Panther. Um, I loved WandaVision. And um, well, I liked Wonder Woman, but that's not Marvel. So I guess we'll say I'm a new superhero fan. Um, and and the reason really that we watched Ant-Man, I had been kind of avoiding watching it because I was like, I don't, I don't know about this whole premise. But we both teach quantum computing right now. And one thing one thing that i ask my students like if i'm talking to a new group of students about quantum mechanics or quantum computing i always ask them like what do you think of when you hear about quantum just to kind of gauge the level and stuff and like maybe you know in a high school chemistry class you may have heard about it like about atomic orbitals and stuff or if maybe you've heard about it in pop culture and a ton of kids were saying ant-man quantum realm and i'm like okay it's time to do, it's time to watch Ant-Man. So if we've been spending time watching movies, it's not for our entertainment. It's so that we can teach better. <laughs> exactly. So maybe we can just sum up the basic premise of Ant-Man. If in case um, someone who's listening is not familiar, but the movie is about this character um, who acquires a suit, which lets him um, shrink down to the size of an ant. And um he uses that power for good. And separately, there's also another invention that's really not discussed whatsoever that allows him to control the ants around him. Um, that's, so, the, that's the really cool invention. <laughs> <laughs> right. We so, so we won't really be touching too much on that particular superpower. I'm not a biologist. I don't know anything about ant biology. And I... From what I hear, the the more implausible part of Ant-Man has to do with that side of things. But what we really found interesting was the portrayal of quantum and quantum mechanics, and also just the portrayal of scientists in general. Yeah, I'm. Um, I think one one thing that uh, I would like to talk about um, and actually discuss with you, Sarah, is what we thought about the um, the portrayal of scientists, not just in Ant-Man. I think it's about a lot of movies which depict scientists and the way that scientists are depicted. Um, and we will talk about movies that didn't do it as well and maybe some examples that did. Yeah, yeah. So in general, just kind of to to talk about the portrayal of quantum, I do think it is a cool thing that a really popular movie tackled this. And, you know, because I could ask students, oh, what have you heard about quantum? And they're like, nothing. I have no idea what this is or like something stupid, boring I learned about in school. But now they're like, oh, oh my gosh, Ant-Man. So it de- definitely does yeah. create the hype and create that excitement and give a little bit of an idea of what quantum means. So I think that that is 
overall ultimately a really positive thing. Yeah, and also um, I think some of the very um, some of the ideas that you could start off with when you think about quantum, like it's different and it's small and weird things happen. I think those are communicated in the movie. Yeah. And yeah, um, it's a good starting point. Yeah, but one thing that I have to say, I really, I mean, it just absolutely killed me, was their mention of titanium molecules, <laughs> the repeated mention of titanium molecules. So I, I have a material science background, um, and I had a chemistry major before that. So while I may not necessarily be able to speak to, as I said, the biology or the particle physics aspects of this. This is really my wheelhouse. Um, atoms versus molecules, you know, molecular compounds, ionic compounds. That's that's the kind of thing I really know about. And the reason that titanium molecules, this phrase, upset me so much is that molecules refers to a covalent compound. And that means that the atoms in that compound are sharing electrons. That doesn't happen with titanium metal. We have like what we describe as the sea of electrons and metallic bonds, where it's not like one titanium atom is sharing electrons with another specific titanium atom. They're kind of delocalized. And it, it just makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to talk about titanium molecules. And the context in which this is discussed is that um, Ant-Man's dad, not Ant-Man's dad, other lady's dad. Ant-Man's mentor. Yes, okay. Ant-Man's mentor is talking about how him and his wife back in the day were on this mission and the only way that they can like prevent this missile from launching or something or blowing up is to go subatomic and go um, in between the titanium molecules of the missile in order to, to get inside and prevent whatever is going to happen. And so what should they have really said? I mean, they could have said gone in between the atoms. They could have talked about the lattice, right? You know, metals have a lattice structure. It's not like there's no structure there just because it's a metal. And I guess I wonder what the reason was that they chose to say molecule instead of atom. I think it just slipped between the cracks. Uh -huh. <laughs> How could it? They had science advisors. Well, I don't think they... I mean, what do I know about making movies? But I, I don't. I suspect that they probably don't run every line of dialogue by their science advisor. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the word molecule is maybe a, is more out there than the word atom. I see. Because I'm. I guess I was thinking about like, well, do more people know the word atom or the word molecule? And I feel like maybe more people know what atoms are, but maybe you're right. They wanted to make it like seem more exotic or something. I, I don't know. Um, it's really interesting because I did not pick up on this when I was watching the movie with Sarah. In fact, um, I had a completely different critique for that scene in which they talk about having to go between the titanium molecules. Um, my critique of it was that there were rivets and seams in that missile right there. It's not an airtight missile, people. <laughs> So you can just go in there. And also, I find it a bit suspicious that a missile is made of titanium. Like the point is that it's going to blow up. So why would you make it out of titanium? But then Sarah pointed out that she was outraged by that scene because of molecules. It really goes to show our different expertise, I guess. And do you want to talk a little bit about what your background is? And yeah, the, yeah. So, um, so I uh, got my uh, undergraduate degree in uh, electrical engineering as as 
and I also got my PhD in electrical engineering, but I consider myself more of an applied physicist. Um, so yeah, my background is in um, um, the physics of electron microscopes, thinking about quantum mechanics and how it applies to uh, microscopy. So yeah, there are definitely different things <laughs> that we we picked up on. And I think any chemist or material scientist would just be like, as outraged as I was. And then they talk about it again, where Ant-Man has to go inside the um, evil guy's suit. Evil Ant-Man's suit. Evil Ant-Man. Yeah. He has to go inside evil Ant-Man's suit. And again, he's like, we have to go, we have to like go through these titanium molecules. And I was like, mm, okay, this is <laughs> and, clearly a choice. And once again, it's not an airtight suit, people. <laughs> There's joints and there's rivets everywhere. Just go into one of those. So, yeah, this may not be the first thing that people critique about this movie, because I think there are maybe perhaps bigger fish to fry in terms of quantum <laughs> physics. But uh, this this did upset me quite a bit. Um, so another thing that I wanted to mention was in the course of us teaching quantum computing, as Sarah has been saying, people bring up Ant-Man because it is, I think, the most recent and the biggest example of a movie talking about um, quantum stuff. And so one student um, um, a few weeks ago asked me, what would you see if you could shrink that small? Um, like if you could shrink that small and go into the quantum realm, what would it look like? And was the depiction, was what was shown in Ant-Man really correct? And I, I, I would be interested in knowing what you think about this. But my response to that student at the time was that it's really hard to answer that question because if you want to shrink to that that small a level, then you're necessarily breaking the rules of quantum physics. Like you're saying that quantum physics does not apply to you, because um, there's a reason that there is a there is a reason why atoms are a certain distance apart from each other, and there's a reason why different materials have different densities, and it all ultimately is to do with the rules of quantum physics. So when you say that you're changing the distance between atoms to shrink down you're ultimately saying that the rules of quantum physics are not applying to your atoms. And then it's really hard to then say, okay, so the quantum, quantum physics doesn't apply to you, but it still applies to everything else. What does that look like? It's a very, I find that a very hard question to answer meaningfully. Yeah, and I guess maybe that is what they were going for with like, I mean, you're the one wearing the ant suit, you know? So I guess all the rules are are different for, for you inside the ant suit, but yeah. I, I don't know because I, I it's, I, yeah, I guess it's maybe my lack of imagination also <laughs> comes into it. Um, but it's just hard for me to conceptualize how something, like, I feel like physics ultimately has to be consistent, yeah. right? And so I feel like locally somehow altering the laws of quantum physics seems very weird. And I find it very hard to conceptualize that happening. Well, you know, what I can tell you about what you'd expect to see if you shrunk down to that level is that you would not see a boar atom. <laughs> um, one thing that was depicted, they have when Ant-Man ultimately does shrink down, uh, goes subatomic, if you will. Um, <laughs> he, there's all these like uh, animations going around of, I guess, what he's seeing. And one of them is just like a classic depiction of what maybe people think of when when they think of an atom it's like the little balls for the nucleus and these nice circular orbitals going around it and orbits. what orbits. oh orbits not orbitals thank you um 
And that is the model of the atom that people used before quantum mechanics. It was that, you know, okay, the or the orbits are circular and or spherical, and um, they're, they're going outward from the nucleus and these nice simple jumps yeah and these nice shells and it's really funny that we're talking about the quantum realm and they're using a decidedly not quantum model to show what's happening there (laughs) now i guess if you had like the d orbitals in there and everything people would not recognize that as immediately as an atom yeah i guess that's a nice visual marker for you have reached the level of atoms yeah but also i feel like it's a bit of a missed opportunity because orbitals just look so much cooler than orbits they have all of these really interesting shapes, and um, I, I would I would have loved to see a visual depiction of them. Yeah, yeah. So you had mentioned a point earlier, Akshay, about um, the reason it would be weird to ask the question, "What would things look like when you shrink so small?" Is because these rules of quantum are really dictating the spacing between atoms. Um, do you want to give a little bit of context about why that's the case like what rules of quantum mechanics are mm-hmm. telling you uh how far apart like two hydrogen atoms would be in a hydrogen molecule for example yeah so and i think um this is a question which you can also i think add a lot to because um it's kind of in between the wheelhouses of physics and chemistry mm-hmm. right but ultimately, when you think about the distance between atoms and molecules, you have to think about the electro the electromagnetic force, which is what is operating in between them. So atoms are made up of these charged particles, and these charged particles, they um, interact through the electromagnetic force. And um, that force, the strength of that force, is um, dictated by this constant called E. It's something that you can measure. And... Um, the strength of that force is ultimately what is um, determining how far away atoms can be from each other because at that scale, right, you have several of these forces interacting with each other. So, you know, if you've if you've learned a little bit about atoms, you know that electrons have a negative charge and what's in the nucleus, protons have a positive charge. And if you remember from like school physics, like opposite charges attract, um, similar charges repel. And so there's this very delicate balance that happens between interacting atoms or interacting molecules. And it's like at that point where the two, these two forces of attraction and repulsion are balanced that um, the two atoms, like that's what determines how far away they're gonna be from each other. And if you, if you want to change that, then you have to change something very, very fundamental about the electromagnetic force. And that's what makes that question of, um, well, what would that look, what would it look like if you could shrink down that far, um, what would it look like that far? That's what makes it hard to answer. Yeah, and I, I think of it, you know, a similar way, like you you have the positively charged nucleuses, nuclei, I don't know, you have the negatively charged electron clouds. And so there's going to be a repulsion between similarly charged things and attraction between oppositely charged things going on when you move two atoms closer together. And it's that balance. Mm. A lot of what I've read online about Um, the science and physics of Ant-Man is saying like, well, what if you could keep those charges the same? Let's keep all the chemistry the same. We're just changing the masses. And then you would be able to have all of these effects going on. Mm -hmm. Um, I I will say, right, I don't know anything about particle physics, so I can't really speak to whether that is a reasonable uh, thing, but. And yeah, 
I, yeah, I think it's, um, again, I, I think some of this is just maybe my own lack of imagination that I can't really talk about what the world would look like, but it's just a hard question to answer. Yeah. But yeah. I, I do want to commend the movie for trying. Yes, um, yes. They did show some really cool visuals as Ant-Man shrunk further and further down. And I believe that the the kind of lattice-like, like periodic kind of structures that they were showing in the subatomic realm, I think that that's somehow related to strength theory. And I also like they had him, Ant-Man, like, you know, showing multiple copies of him. And maybe there's something to be said there on like superposition and Some, like yeah. being in, in more than one place at once. Or there's a certain probability that you could be found in different places. So, yeah, I think, you know, it depends on what you read into it. But yeah. regardless, I think it was, you know, a cool thing to see in a movie. So one other question that often comes up with students in regards to Ant-Man is saying like, when you know, for example, if we talk about tunneling, quantum tunneling, we're saying that uh, an electron or an atom or something can go from one side of the barrier to another, like kind of passing through it or without breaking the barrier. And the way that I think about that is through probability. And it's that, let's say you have tons and tons of electrons on one side of the barrier and they're all in like this superposition of positions. You know, there's a chance that they'll be in one place. There's a chance that they'll be in another place. And because there's a certain probability that they're going to end up on this other side of the wall, if you have enough of them, yeah, one of them is going to end up on that other side. And students often think about Ant-Man and are like, oh yeah, that's because, you know, it's so, so small and this wall is mostly empty space and it, the thing that's tunneling can fit between the atoms and get to the other side. And I thought that that was an interesting point because that actually, um, Akshay, you were talking about how that's more reminiscent of the Rutherford gold foil experiment. Yeah, um, so maybe I can give a bit of yeah. context about this experiment. So in the early 20th century, people were still trying to figure out what these atoms looked like, what the quantum, I guess the word quantum wasn't really um, very popularized at that point, but what these really small things looked like. And a really classic experiment that uh, this physicist from New Zealand and his students did was um, they took a very, very, very thin sheet of gold and um, they basically shot um, what are called alpha particles at that gold. So alpha particles are a type of radiation that had also been recently discovered. And so they... Um, and they're they're helium nuclei, yes. right? So they're they're massive, like they're they have mass. They're hard, yeah. I guess. You yeah, can, they're you, particles. Yeah. You can. Th so the analogy that Rutherford used for this experiment was it was like um, shooting a cannonball at a thin piece of like tissue paper. Um, that was his analogy for this experiment. And so, what he was expecting would happen was that these alpha particles would all kind of go through. He, they would all go through the tissue paper because at the time the model for the atom that existed was that atoms were what what are called plum puddings. I think that was the model yeah. where you have like this kind of diffuse ball of positive charge and you've got some negatively charged um, raisins, if you will, like kind of embedded in that positive charge. And so, and between those, there's just like this empty space. And so he was expecting that these alpha particles would just like go through the empty space. But what actually happened was that while most particles did go through the empty space, or maybe they deflected a little bit, some of them bounced back. Some of them just did a, went and did a 180 degree turn and came back. And this was really, really surprising. 
And um, this was this kind of led to the development of further atoms, further models of the atom. But the broader point here is that that idea that you were talking about of electrons or whatever that is tunneling being very small and going in between the gaps is what Rutherford in that experiment was expecting to happen for alpha particles. And you can explain that without using any quantum. That's just, that's, that's what you would expect to happen completely, like in a completely classical world. If something is small enough, yeah, you expect it to go in between whatever gaps it can find. Yeah. And if you're talking about quantum tunneling, which I guess is what I thought was happening in Ant-Man because they're talking about the quantum realm, mm. is that, you know, you're on one side of the barrier and then you get over to the other side. And I, if I'm not mistaken, it's not completely clear on what actually happens to get you from one side to the other. And this is based on probability. It's not based on, well, I'm so small that I can get through the cracks. Yeah. And I think that this is where, um, so what actually happens with tunneling, I think is a question that's better answered by someone who works on foundations of quantum mechanics, which yeah. is neither one of us. Um, but our, I think our understanding is that it's kind of an open question right now. There's, there's different interpretations of, of quantum mechanics and different interpretations will say different things, but it, I think it's a bit of an open question. Um, but I think what we can say is that it's not that it's not something being small enough to fit in, fit in the gaps. Yeah, yeah, that that idea, the being small enough to fit in the gaps is distinct from quantum tunneling. And I think Ant-Man does not, if I remember, use the word quantum tunneling, but then when people have watched this movie and then hear about quantum mm -hmm. tunneling, they might get a little bit confused. Um, and I have seen students get confused about that idea. There is a second Ant-Man movie which we need to watch. <laughs> yeah. And that, I mean, it's been a while since I watched it, but that does have a character um, going through walls. Okay. So as they like to say at the end of Marvel movies, um, Sarah Nakshay will be back <laughs> with the discussion of the second Ant-Man <laughs> we'll, um, we'll have a, a little bit of credits. And then like 20 minutes later, I'll say like one sentence about our next <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, yeah, there are things obviously that you can nitpick about any time science is portrayed in a movie because it's hard to make it completely accurate and also fit the plot of whatever you're trying to do. And also entertaining because most of science is just grunt work. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. <laughs> um, but overall, I think it is cool that when I ask students, have you heard of quantum before? Many of them have and for younger students, at least, this is due in large part to Ant-Man. So that's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. And uh, yeah, I, I think all of these uh, all of these other points that we've made are embedded in a broader context of, we think it's really cool that the movie brought forth some of these ideas. Yeah, yeah, except, you know, <laughs> please do revisit that point on Atoms versus Marvel's <laughs> Marvel, thank you. And then another thing that kind of came to our minds when we were watching this and not necessarily about the science itself, but just about the portrayal of scientists and how science is done. Hmm. Yeah. So, I th and I think this is broader than just the Ant-Man movie. It's, yeah. I think it's about how scientists and science and how science is done is depicted generally in movies. And so the way that I think it's usually done is you have this like one person and usually it's an old white man. Um, or maybe sometimes a young white man. <laughs> um, but you have this one person who um, 
you know, is working and working. And sometimes they're like, they're like, they're like the only person who's working on this and they're brilliant, but they're ignored by society. And they make this amazing discovery and um, they do the theory of it. They do the engineer, the design of it. They do the engineering of it. Um, so in the Ant-Man movie, it's this Dr. Hank Pym who makes these Pym particles, develops the theory, synthesizes them, makes the suit, uses the suit, right? And then um, the other famous, um, um, the other famous Marvel scientist, Tony Stark, he develops the theory, designs it, uses it, makes it everything, right? Um, there's, so, there's so many examples, right? Of, yeah. of this one person doing everything. And I know that obviously you can't really depict like hundreds of people doing these things because movies have a budget and also they want to be entertaining. But I do wish that there was some attempt to show that modern science is collaborative and that it's not something that's done by just one person. And I think that it's really detrimental that that's the most popular depiction of scientists because it makes if if you're someone who's if you're someone who's watching this movie and who's interested in doing science and this is your reference point for what a working scientist might look like, you might think, oh Jesus Christ, I have to know so much, I have to do all of these different things to be successful, which is really really not the case. Like when you're a working scientist most of the time you'll be working on a very, very narrow problem. And you'll know a lot about that very narrow problem, but you don't need to know much else around that problem. And you will either be a theorist or you will be someone who's designing or you will be someone who's making it. You, unless you're some kind of screaming genius, and even in that case, I think it's highly unlikely, you're just not going to be doing all of those things at once. So, you know, maybe... Tony Stark has a whole army of grad students who he just never talks about. I feel like that would be really like him. You know, everyone else is doing all the work and he's just like, we're just seeing yeah. as though he's doing everything. No, I doubt that that's actually the case. Um, he does have an AI, which surprise, surprise, he also built himself. That is that is unrealistic. He would have hired an undergrad to do that, <laughs> at least hired an undergrad to build his AI. I think there w- there was one part of Ant-Man where they had like a maybe like 10 scientists like at their different little benches or something, but it was only because they wanted to make a big show of like a big reveal. Anyone who's a main character doing science, um, it it really is them by themselves. And also, I think it's really funny that whenever they want to show like a geek scientist, they show them wearing a lab coat. And whenever they want to show like a cool scientist, they show them wearing a suit. <laughs> I didn't notice that. (laughs) Have you ever seen Tony Stark wearing a suit? Uh, uh, Sorry, a lab coat? No, but that's because he has his army of grad students (laughs) who are doing everything for him and he doesn't give them any credit. I think that this idea of these lone people working on science, it's it's kind of, it's based on a very outdated conception of science. Like, you know, you think of an inventor, you think, uh, you know, I think the general... uh, when you think of an inventor, you might think of someone like a Nikola Tesla or an, uh, Thomas Edison, or you know, if you go a bit further back, you might think of like Newton or these like in truly these individual people who did come up with um, really amazing ideas. But that's that's kind of a very like pre twentieth century view of science. Like science now is just so collaborative. You'll very rarely find something that's done by just one person. Um, especially in in like engineering and design and experiments, things have become just so 
um, specialized that you necessarily need a team of experts. You can't just do it all at once. And I think that it's detrimental because instead of showing people that there is a place for your specific skill sets in this much broader effort of science that exists, it's kind of showing you that um, you need to have all of these different skills or you can't make it, which is um, which is just completely inaccurate. Yeah, and to bring in another uh, Marvel show, I guess, um, that had that stereotype of the one scientist who knows literally everything was in WandaVision. So they had Dr. Darcy Lewis, who really could answer every <laughs> single question about any area of science. And that just, it feels so unrealistic. During my PhD, if you asked me about um, a different type of defect in LEDs that was different from the one that I specifically worked on, I'd be like, I don't know, maybe you should talk to this other person, right? It's so, so, so specific. And to have this girl who like knows how to build the TV thing to like get the signal for the, for seeing what's inside the thing. And then also understands like about how to, the, the physics of like getting through the wall and then some biology thing i'm like okay <laughs> and also literally every scientist is apparently a hacker like, right yeah literally every scientist apparently can get into these highly secure um systems which like neither of us are a hacker <laughs> right yeah not not every scientist is a hacker <laughs> yeah i just again and i want to acknowledge that there's obviously budget constraints and the, yeah. you want to you want to make you want to make the movie entertaining and it's um easier to have this one person who can just be the science guy or um, science woman well i mean i use guy as gender neutral but yeah okay you're right um, you're right you know <laughs> they can be just this one science person uh, and it's much easier to do do it that way than have like a different expert for every science question you have but i just wish that there was some effort towards depicting how collaborative um current day science is so that people can feel more like oh i can see myself fitting into this broader picture rather than oh jesus christ this is what it's like i like i have to know everything otherwise i'm just not gonna make it yeah yeah so i guess our general plea is for a more realistic and three-dimensional portrayal of scientists in movies how would you want to be portrayed in a movie if you were if you were the science character well it's funny because i feel like i kind of fit some of the stereotypes in that um i don't wear fashionable clothes or talk about a lot of things apart from science. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, they've got me back down. But a lot of people I met in grad school were very different. <laughs> and and you also have collaborators. You don't yes, work yes, entirely I, yes. alone. Yes. Um, and I do think that there is a lot to be said for telling the story of a grad student, like being isolated and struggling through grad school and finding collaborators and finding friends to do it with. But see, in a Marvel movie, the grad student who is isolated and struggles would become the villain. There's <laughs> no way we make it out on the other side of this um, in good shape, you know? I just think that there are stories to be told about science that and scientists that are more realistic to what it actually is like now. Um, and it is not in most cases, it's not one old white guy sitting and inventing stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right, so before we wrap up, we just wanted to talk about a quick call to action. India is having a really tough situation with COVID right now and could really use donations. Um, I'm going to link 
a site that has a bunch of different places that are accepting donations for things like oxygen cylinders and concentrators. So if you can make a contribution, that would be really awesome. So that's pretty much everything we wanted to get off our chests. Um, thank you so much for listening. Keep tuning in if you want to hear similar rants.